I'm Chuck Smeaton and this is a Cosmos Insights podcast, where we talk to scientists in Australia about the impact of their work. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In November 1987, 35 years ago, 266 scientists met at Monash University at what was the first meeting to consider the national scientific response to the greenhouse gas problem. At the time, many were working on ridding the atmosphere of chlorofluorocarbons, closing the hole over the Antarctic. Many were sceptical of claims that carbon dioxide was an existential threat. Today, Cosmos editor Ian Mannix talks to Graham Pierman from the CSIRO who organised the meeting and Neville Nichols from the Bureau of Meteorology Research Centre who attended. Graham, I think it's right to say, isn't it, that you organised Greenhouse 87? Yes, that's true. What brought you to that? Because you'd had, it looks like, 20 years of science in and relating to the, the greenhouse problem. Why did you have the meeting in 1987? Well, through the the 70s, um, our confidence around the underpinning science of climate change was growing all the way. But uh, the concern was that many of our colleagues in other disciplines were virtually unaware of what was happening in atmospheric science around the climate change issue. So uh, the the whole idea of this conference was to bring together a range of disciplines to say or look at what it meant for their discipline if the climate was to change in a certain uh, way. So we provided them with uh, uh, a scenario of what we thought might happen uh, going forward. We gave uh, uh, these people, there was uh, about 80 80 of them from around Australia in different disciplines, we gave them a year to think about this and to do any research they needed and then to come together in the uh, Greenhouse 87 meeting to present their results. There must have been a time before 87 when you realised that uh, the greenhouse gases were actually raging in the atmosphere, that they were building up in in an inexorable way. Do you remember that moment in your scientific life? Uh, I do because, uh, in fact, in in the uh, very early 1970s when I first joined CSIRO, Uh, I was uh, a sceptic about climate change, Uh, and that was mainly because we had been measuring uh, CO2 uh, over wheat crops to try to understand the growth of of wheat, and we found that the concentration of CO2 was very similar to what David Keeling in the US was measuring at Mauna Loa, Hawaii. And David had actually been saying, well, the concentration's increasing, and uh, being young scientists, we were sceptical and we uh, thought, well, maybe he's got drifting standards. So we established, uh, and I'm talking about John Garrett, a colleague of mine and myself, we established uh, some standards of our own and uh, commenced some measurements. And within about a year, certainly by the end of 1972, uh, we knew the Keeling was right, that the concentration was going up. But then in those days, we had insufficient knowledge of the carbon cycle. So to answer the question, why is it going up? But we couldn't really answer that then. And of course, we're looking back and we knew about the literature in the 1800s about the fact that if CO2 did change in the atmosphere, the climate would change. 
Um, but that led us to uh, continuing the measurements. Uh, by 1976, we had established uh, Cape Grim Observatory, which had permanent measurements of carbon dioxide. But by that stage, we were also measuring the freons, the chlorofluorocarbon gases that were ri rising very rapidly in the atmosphere at that time, and they were their greenhouse gases. And we were measuring, uh, we started measuring methane and nitrous oxide, the other major greenhouse gases. So it was through the 1970s that we uh, developed an understanding that the atmosphere on a global basis was really changing, and it was changing with respect to gases that potentially could change the climate. And you remember the, the first piece of data that you got that confirmed that? Uh, I, don't, I don't really uh, remember a particular day because, you see, obviously carbon dioxide also has a seasonal cycle. And so uh, it turns out that that seasonal cycle in the Southern Hemisphere is quite small, uh, which meant that by only about a year, we were still a, pretty sure that we could see an increase, whereas the keeling measuring in the Northern Hemisphere was a much more more variability. You needed several years of data to, to look for uh, the trend. So I don't really, th there was not a, a, a day which said, yeah, this is what's happening. But a period of time after about 12 months that we were pretty sure that Keeling was right. And Neville, you came to the meeting as a tropical cyclone specialist. Did you have a time in your research before Greenhouse 87 when you started to realise that even tropical cyclones would be impacted by what we now refer to as climate change? Not really. I think that Greenhouse 87 was a real turning point for, for many of us. My, my work up till then had really been on natural climate variability, but El Nino, Southern Oscillation, La Nina's, and how they affected tropical cyclone, seasonal behaviour in, in things like that. So I, I was sort of a, a bit late getting into looking at climate change, but by a couple of years after that, I was heavily involved in, in IPCC from the time it was set up. And so I spent, I've always said, my first half of my career was on natural climate variability. Most of the second half has been on what humans are doing to stuff up the natural variability. Uh, and I think it's important to point out that like, scientists knew that carbon dioxide was increasing in the atmosphere and that there were likely consequences to the climate. And I particularly point out that this year is the 50th anniversary of, a, of an important four-page paper in Nature written by John Sawyer about the climate consequences of the increasing CO2 but it's interesting that his paper, if anything, thought the influence was going to be fairly benign and not particularly strong. Certainly there's no hint of catastrophe, I guess, back then, in, the, in 50 years ago. And even by Greenhouse 87, at that time there was a, a fair bit of discussion about winners and losers, about what is the balance of the impact of this climate change on overall on the environment, on society, agriculture. Is it catastrophic or is it just a balance? Yeah, there are some really um, interesting findings in the book that came out. Just We'll come back to those in a moment. Graham, what did you try to achieve with, um, with Greenhouse 87 and do you think you did achieve that? 
Yes, I, I, I think we did. I mean, what we were trying to achieve was a broadening of the knowledge that potentially climate change was going to impact on all sorts of things, on hydrology, on agriculture, on energy demand, on insurance and uh, and so on, all sorts of areas. And that uh, at that time, or, uh, in the lead up to that uh, conference, most of the those disciplines were not attending to that issue at all. And I think by the time people had come to the meeting and spoke about their particular areas, and the the greenhouse eighty seven book is full of of uh, details about these various uh, potential uh, issues. These people, many of them, went away, and in fact, a few of them are still researching uh, climate change uh, today, whether it be on sea level change or whatever it might be. So I think it was successful in the sense that we really got. Uh, uh, that kind of interest in other disciplines other than just atmospheric science. Yeah, you're listening to um, me, Ian Mannix from Cosmos Science. I'm speaking to Graham Pearman, who organised Greenhouse 87, and Neville Nichols, who attended. Graham, you mentioned uh, that you think you probably achieved it. What was the atmosphere like at the meeting? Was it uh, curious? Was it uh, urgent? Was it uh, sceptical? I think it's a bit of a mixture. I mean, uh, all of us uh, had a degree of scepticism still at that point. I mean, as Neville has pointed out, the details of exactly how climate change would unfold, particularly on a regional basis, these things were developing and we didn't uh, we didn't know for sure. I mean, the the people who turned up to the meeting and, and made presentations were provided with the scenario, but that's uh, of what might happen. That scenario was based on, uh, it was made by Barry Pittock, one of our staff members at CSIRO, and it was based on changing the pole to to equate a gradient of temperature, which we everyone expected to happen in uh, a warming world, uh, some uh, paleological uh, materials, and also looking at records of warm years and, and cold years in Australia. And he built this scenario. And actually, it's not too far off what has started to unfold. I think it was a doubling of the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Yeah, that, that's right. But uh, even today, I mean, the details of exactly how things will unfold at the sort of scale that people want to know, they want to know what will happen in the Latrobe Valley or wherever it might be. It's not so easy to actually uh, to answer those questions, even though we've now had all of these years of development, uh, both in the Bureau of Meteorology and in CSIRO, of climate models that can be used a much more sophisticated way to determine what might actually happen in the in the uh, pursuing uh, years. Uh, and of course, uh, we have lots of colleagues around the world that have been doing uh, similar sorts of things. So I, I, I think there was a degree of scepticism still, but I think people who had thought about it in their own disciplines, whether they were hydrologists or sea level people or whatever, I think had come to the, the realisation that this, in fact, was potentially a major problem. Neville, um, I've been to many conferences. I've organised some myself. I've been on the organising committees of some. There's always a disconnect between the organising committees and the people at the back of the room who've come to observe. Did you feel that um, in your conversations, because you weren't one of the principal organisers, did 
you feel in your conversations at the meeting that people were trusting the science, the scientists and the process? It was a very typical science conference and if if Graham held the same conference today, it would be so different. Like it was oh, yeah. dominated by middle-aged white male scientists. There were I've gone through and checked handful of women, no Indigenous representation, no minority representation. Um, I was about the youngest person there and I was 35. So if you, can you imagine now, and 260 participants, it was big, but now you couldn't run this conference without less than probably two to 3,000 people turning up, people gluing their hands to works of art in the Monash foyers, youth activists, and it's just changed, and it's not all due to Graham and Barry Piddick and the conference, but they it was revolutionary, I think, that conference, when you're looking back at it, and I've been looking at it, back at it very carefully over the last few months. One thing I, I point out is that at the moment, every year about 70,000 scientific journal papers are published on global warming, greenhouse effect, climate change. Back then, in 1987, there was a handful every year. I think in, by the late 80s, you might have got to, up to about 100, but in 87, 86, there were literally a handful. And this book that Graham edited produced 54 peer-reviewed papers mm. on that topic. It, 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 it was revolutionary at the time. And I'm not saying it's caused this explosion of 70,000 every year but it did contribute in a big way to increasing and spreading the understanding and interest of scientists globally and across many fields. So I think Graham's got a lot to be proud of. Thank you. Yeah, Graham, you've written a book which is 700, more than 700 pages long. I know you didn't write it, but you edited it. But that in itself is a giant piece of work. Did you find that that was also a bit revolutionary or were there plenty of 700-page books around in 1987 about climate change? Well, it, it, for me it was, uh, it was quite a different year because uh, normally I would have published uh, several research papers in a year. Um, I didn't publish any, I don't think, in that year because it took me a whole year of solid work with with help uh, from staff to go through and organise the uh, peer review. Every paper in that uh, document was uh, peer reviewed by two uh, independent people. Uh, do a lot of editing and to bring it all together into a form. And in those days, it was all done in a photo-ready uh, photo form and uh, we had to do all the printing in it and so on. So it was a, it was a big uh, task, but it was I found it exciting because it did exactly what I'd hoped it would do. It uh, brought out all these guys uh, in these various fields uh, thinking about it and uh, thinking seriously about it, and I think uh, it's a good set of papers. Overall, obviously, it galvanised the scientific community. You can see that in the book and the work that you've done in the follow-up research. Did it also galvanise the wider community? What was the role of the media that you'd hoped uh, would occur, Graham? Well, it, it's that's an interesting question because uh, in organising the meeting, really, I had really no intention of using it as a publicity uh, or or a promotional idea. 
Um, but it turned out to be fairly big in that regard. We had quite a lot of uh, press there. We had invited people to come and report on the meeting, um, but they did so very well. But at the same time, we had uh, joined in uh, collaboration with um, uh, another group. Uh, and uh, the following year, we had a, a publicity uh, greenhouse meeting and uh, promoted that, uh, and that, I think, led to a very wide uh, public uh, awareness. And, in fact, in, in 88, ourselves and the Commission for the Future, which was the other group, uh, were awarded uh, United Nations uh, Global 500 Award on the basis uh, that, uh, and the citation says quite clearly, that uh, no other organisation nationally or internationally had actually achieved such publicity of the climate change issue in the community at large. And I'm quite proud of that, although, as I say, it was actually at the time not what we were planning to do as incidental. That leads me to the last section uh, that I want to talk about, which is the science, because in one of the clippings I saw, I think perhaps Neville sent it to me, there's a, a piece of, uh, there's a reporting from the event that said somebody was really excited about climate change because it would raise the water levels on the Great Barrier Reef and it would make the Great Barrier Reef even more beautiful. <laughs> uh, I think at the moment that's possibly a little embarrassing for that particular group, but what else could you do? I'm just wondering how close do you think the science got or was there some things like that that would ultimately mislead our community? Um, I don't think there was a lot of misleading stuff, to be quite honest, because I think most of the scientists were careful about what they said they thought could be said with confidence and what couldn't be. Certainly in the review process, I was quite uh, hard on people who they, I thought were making statements that were not justified on the basis of the evidence so far. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't think any of it was that misleading, but... It happens. It's happening today. We still hear people making quite misleading statements about what will happen with climate change. And partly uh, it's generalisation. You know, people in the media, for example, I mean, they try to to conclude what might actually happen from uh, in areas where we simply don't have enough uh, information right now. And uh, in some cases, it's, uh, it's because they are seriously concerned and they want action. But that's not the role of science. Uh, advocacy is not what we were there for. We were there trying to provide the best information about what we could say or not say about the climate change issue. Neville, you'd already said to me earlier that uh, there was an element of scepticism in what you brought to the event. But in, in hindsight, Neville, do you think it was a good event? Uh, and do you think it uh, changed the nature of the debates in Australia, obviously in the way that Graham would like to have had? I think it did. Well, it, it alerted so many scientists from so many fields of the potential for climate change being an influence. And it, it's interesting reading through the chapters now, but there is a balance. Of, some people were particularly worried about the potential effect, and one of them, interesting, you know, just reading out this one, large and potentially catastrophic floods will become more frequent. That <laughs> seems very... Apropos at the moment, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. So there are comments like that, but then there are also comments like 
Overall, it appears that increased greenhouse gases will have both positive and negative effects on the productivity of agroecosystems. So there were some, some people who, who did see there was a potential problem, others who saw that possibly we, it, it wasn't going to be too catastrophic. And I think overall the tone of a conference was that within Australia at least there, we could possibly deal with this. And I think the feeling was because of that, because of two reasons. One, we already dealt with large natural variations of a climate in Australia. We don't have a stable climate anyway. So farmers are used to dealing with floods and droughts. So adding more might make it harder for them, but they at least knew had had some basis for doing it. There was also a feeling back then that this is a long-term problem and governments are going to have a long time to actually react, and that we will deal with it. We will deal with it by once we realise whether it's a, a major issue, governments will step in across the world and will take action to reduce emissions. And at least some of us, like me, were quite naive scientists at the time, and we thought that's just going to happen, isn't it? Um, and at, at that time and sort of for years afterwards, if, if any family members or friends ask me, is this greenhouse thing a problem? I used to say my stock answer was, it's only going to be a problem if we let it become a problem. Unfortunately, we have. Mm. Um, so I was, I was naive at the time, and I suspect some of my colleagues were naive, who we thought, as we work out the deleterious consequences of this, governments will work harder to actually make sure isn't too deleterious. And the rest, of course, is history. Graham Pearman and uh, Neville Nichols, thank you very much for talking to Cosmos Science. Thank you, Ian. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code you will also find in the description. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was conducted by Ian Mannix. Thank you.